0: This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you so much for coming to this. My name is Stuart Kelly. I'm a writer and reviewer. And it's an immense pleasure to be here with Tom McCarthy. Tom is, to my mind, uh, to my slightly... Uh, arrogant mind, are uh, the most aesthetically demanding, the most intellectually challenging, and the most emotionally plangent writers of his generation. And we're going to be talking about and seeing part of his new work, *Satin Island. *Satin Island is a book about connectedness and interconnection and disconnection. We'll see the short film, he will give a short reading, then we'll have a conversation and I really want you to join in with the conversation. So please welcome Tom McCarthy.
2: Thank you very much. I just, um, I just press, I press space and it should all work.
1: <laughs> in an event about connection, disconnection and...
2: Press space again. The final spur the one that carries skydivers across the threshold, out into the abyss, is faith. Faith that it all, the system in its boundless and unquantifiable entirety, works. That they'll be gathered up and saved. For this man though, the victim, that system, its whole fabric, had unraveled. That and not his death was the catastrophe that had befallen him. We're all going to die. There's nothing so disastrous about that, nothing in its ineluctability that undermines the structure of our being. But for the faith, the blind, absolute faith into whose arms he had entrusted his existence, from whose mouth he'd sought a of whispered affirmation of this very possibility that to suddenly be plucked away. That must have been atrocious. He'd have looked around him, seen the sky and earth, its landmass and horizon, all the vertical and horizontal axes that hold these together, felt acceleration and the atmosphere and all the rest, the fundamental elements in which we hang suspended all the time whether we've just jumped from an aeroplane or not. And yet for him, this realm with all its width and depth and volume, would have in an instant become emptied of its properties, its values. The vast font at which he prayed and into which he sank as though to rebaptize himself time and again, would in the blink of a dilated eye have been voided of Godhead, rendered meaningless. Space, even as he plunged into it, through it, would have retreated, recoiled, contracted, pulled back from its frontiers, even though they stayed intact, withdrawn to some zero point, at which it flips into its negative. Negative world, negative sky, negative everything. That's the territory this man had entered. Did that then mean he'd somehow fallen through into another world, another sky, a richer, fuller, more embracing one? I don't think so.
1: in context, Saturn Island is a novel about you, the letter U, the only initial we have for the narrator, who is a corporate anthropologist working on the report, uh, a text which will explain us to ourselves in the present moment. And in the course of writing this, he finds Eldritch and arcane connections between The Death of a Parachutist, a Lagos traffic jam, the Turing Shroud, uh, an oil spill. It's a wonderful book about saturation and the way in which messages are always corrupted as we receive them. Um, Tom, I'd like you to read a bit of it as well, just so we can hear it in your voice. Uh, from the text, so if you want to just
2: great There's, um <clears throat> i get, this is a I love this cover it's it really sums up the book because ultimately it's when I have to say in a word what it's about, I say buffering it's a book about buffering, you know when you wait and the that circle spinning and you're going, you know come on, come on, come on because i I just think that's the kind of symbol of our age somehow and uh and my guy, you the the anthropologist, becomes obsessed with, with many things, with this parachutist whose who's death is in the news and with an oil spill, but somehow buffering seems to be the thing that holds them all in this, in this holding pattern of not quite making sense, but almost. And uh, I can't find the passage now. <laughs> it's, in the, it's in the fives. <coughs> uh, da, 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 sorry about this. We, we are it, buffering. We are moment. buffering, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's in the fours. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Here we are. Brilliant. Okay, and it's all r- thank you very much. It's written in um in numbered paragraphs like uh, like a very like a, a bureaucratic document, like a report or a user's manual to something that doesn't work and maybe isn't even necessary. Um, 7.6. Back in the office as our work on the project kicked in and the general traffic levels edged up, we started experiencing problems with our bandwidth. There was too much information, I guess, shuttling through the servers, down the cables, through the air. My computer, like those of all my colleagues, was afflicted by frequent bouts of buffering. I'd hear Daniel swearing in the next room, fucking buffering, and others shouting the same thing upstairs, their voices funneled to me by the ventilation system. The buffering didn't bother me, though, I'd spend long stretches staring at the little spinning circle on my screen, losing myself in it. Behind it, I pictured hordes of bits and bytes and megabytes all beavering away to get the requisite data to me. Behind them, I pictured a giant Uber server housed somewhere in Finland or Nevada or Uzbekistan, stacks of memory banks, satellite dishes sprouting all around them, pumping out information non-stop, more of it than any single person would need in their lifetime, pumping it all my way in an endless, unconditional, and grace-conferring act of generosity. Datum. Est, it is given. It was this gift, I told myself, this bottomless and inexhaustible torrent of giving that made the circle spin. The data itself, its pure unfiltered content as it rushed into my system, which in turn whirred into streamlined action as it started to reorganize it into legible form. The thought was almost sublimely reassuring. 7.7, 7. but on this thought's outer reaches lay a much less reassuring counterthought: What if it were just a circle spinning on my screen and nothing else? What if the supply chain, its great bounty, had dried up or been cut off or never been connected in the first place? Each time that I allowed this possibility to take hold of my mind, the sense of bliss gave over to a kind of dread. If it was a video file that I was trying to watch, then at the bottom of the screen there'd be that line, that bar, that slowly fills itself in, twice, once in bold red, and at the same time running ahead of that in fainter grey. The fainter section, of course, has to remain in advance of the bold section and of the cursor, showing which part of the video you're actually watching at a given moment. If the cursor and red section catch up, then buffering sets in again. Staring at this bar, losing myself in it, just as with the circle, I was granted a small revelation. It dawned on me that what I was actually watching was nothing less than the skeleton laid bare of time or memory itself. Not our computer's time and memory, but our own. This was its structure. We require experience to stay ahead, if only by a nose, of our consciousness of experience, if for no other reason than that the latter needs to make sense of the former, to narrate it, both to others and ourselves, and for this purpose has to be fed with a constant, unsorted supply of fresh sensations and events. But when the narrating cursor catches right up with the rendering one, when occurrences and situations don't replenish themselves quickly enough for the awareness they sustain, When, no matter how fast they regenerate, they're instantly devoured by a mouth too voracious to let anything gather or accrue unconsumed before it, then we find ourselves jammed, stuck in limbo. We can enjoy neither experience nor consciousness of it. Everything becomes buffering, and buffering becomes everything. The revelation pleased me, I decided I would start a dossier on buffering. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Tom, part of what this novel seems to be about is a kind of apophenia where wow, everything. great. <laughs> 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 the point where everything is invested in meaning. Yeah, totally, that yeah. nothing is unmeaningful, yeah. The connections are drawn between things which are actually disparate. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a bit about the interest in that? Because it seems to me that there's something both thrilling and terrifying about the idea that everything will be meaningful.
2: Yeah, I mean, this seems to, be, to me to be the fundamental stake of, of writing, of literature, and of art in general. It's, it's about the production of meaning. It's about putting meaning in the world. And, and it's doing this, I mean, in that passage I read, I, I'm using all this, deliberately using all this kind of romantic, gnostic imagery of, you know, I mean, Shelley in front of the waterfall, it's you in front of the screen. It's a, it's a, it's a sacred moment where, where this torrent of meaning might burst through at any minute and kind of bathe us in this epiphanic grace of revelation but it never quite happens. It's always frustrated and always deferred. And then on the flip side of that kind of sublime moment, there's a sense, this is all bullshit. There's nothing. There is nothing. <laughs> it's just this void of... The,
1: the aisle is full of noises.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah, signal versus static, exactly. And so the whole the whole kind of task of, of what you is doing professionally, but also, I mean, aesthetically and, and politically as well, we could say, is, is, is of kind of... Of making this wager, do I invest in in believing that there could be meaning that would redeem us <laughs> or 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 is this just a cynical ploy that that the corporation i 'm working for and the governments they work for and the corporations they work for and the whole system is 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 generating in order to keep itself perpetually going i mean or both at the same time you know and this is it 's kind of unresolved i think
1: that's fascinating because when i read it, um, there, there was almost every page I had underlined something, <laughs> but he has a vision of um, an island mm. which he eventually decides must be Staten Island and he talks about uh, the other place, the feeder, filter, overflow manager, the dirty secreted away appendix without which the body proper couldn't function, yet it seemed in its very degradation more weirdly opulent the capital it served. And I'm interested in that idea of the... What's le- the, remainder the remainder, in some yeah. ways, to yeah. go back to, you know, a term you've used before. What's left when meaning is exhausted, when meaning is accomplished?
2: Yeah. I mean, before that dream, he goes and visits... I mean, his background is anthropology and he works for a corporation, um, but he goes at one point and visits a friend of his, who who was at college with, who is now running the anthropology museum in in uh, in Frankfurt, and she shows him around the collection of arrowheads and fetishes and idols and belt buckles and everything, and she she calls it material culture. This is what anthropologists that's their name for like mm. stuff, <laughs> stuff, <laughs> shit, you know, whatever, <laughs> and uh, they call it material culture, which is really interesting, and 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 it's all about interpretation. She says. You know we've got a hundred belt buckles and a hundred arrowheads, but you've got you, you can't throw anything away because just one of them—it's like Citizen Kane—it's all going. You know, one of these things might have rosebud, might have the word that would explain everything. Um, but then what he what he homes in on in that whole collection is this unformed mass of caoutchouc, of rubber in its raw form, just as it comes out of the tree, which is this bulbous tumour-like and he's got a friend dying of cancer and it maps across all this other stuff um, and the oil spills and but but this residue that won't be kind of um, won't the be uh, incorporated, streamlined rendered into a system of, of interpretation, that's the material excess the remainder but and Staten island yeah. satin island is this kind of Dreamlike vision of of this amplified a 100 times over.
1: It's very strange, because that seems to me to um, put two ideas in play against each other. You've used quite a lot of religious language already. It's a totally Um,
2: theological book. I I mean, I'm an atheist through and through, but it's still a theological book. Um,
1: You know, you're talking about grace, you're talking about the point at which um, one is redeemed from something, and you have, on the other hand, this irredeemable mass, this material. I mean, it's theological, but it's Gnostic, really, isn't it? There's matter and there's mind right the way through this.
2: Yeah, I mean I guess, I mean, in all my work, I I, I guess I'm kind of I'm really, uh, whatever, invested, influenced by, inspired by a a, a whole bunch of writers like Joyce, (laughs) would be the obvious one, but Georges Bataille and that kind of dissident, surrealist tradition where it becomes about matter. Matter is not what we need to get rid of in order to achieve spirit and truth. It is precisely the opposite. It's that it's the thing that disrupts any project of, of meaning. Matter is in, uh, irredeemably subversive, and um, I love that. I mean, I, I, I love. It. I think Bataille calls matter the the thing that represents. He calls it the non-logical difference that represents to the universe what crime represents to the law. <laughs> it's just yes. it's, it's criminal. Um, And, you know, Joyce and his just obsession with with base, (laughs) base matter. And and, and so in this book, it plays out mainly as the oil spill, this kind of morphing, disgusting, excessive, but somehow kind of weirdly beautiful mass. And and when he sees the oil hit hit the snowy coastline, he he thinks of ink polluting paper. I mean, it's an act of writing as a kind of material practice of of writing.
1: Those sections about the uh, oil spill are quite astonishing, and his fantasia of the speech he might give in which oil, which which is seen as somehow criminally technological, is remembered as being fundamentally organic, and that... As it coats the birds, they become a kind of polymorphous, perverse. They're in their, oh, yes. their latex suits
2: of the fetish wear, yeah. of, of dead nature. Yeah. But it's but also the archive. I mean, oil is Earth's archive. It's every dinosaur and trilobite, you know, filed away over millions of years. It's the archives bursting forth in this kind of, you know, the library exploding. And there's something very kind of orgiastic about it and he's completely compelled by this and he fantasizes scandalizing all these kind of uh, uh, liberal slash neoliberal kind of TED talk audiences um, by by eulogizing the beauty of, of an oil spill. I want to look back a bit to
1: the Staten Island which was the biggest rubbish dump in the world when it was created and there's this wonderful scene towards the end of it where he's standing there seeing the Staten Island Ferry Sign. And as the people walk across it, it chops it up into new meanings. And you've got Setai Land, Status Er, Satin Fry, Son
2: Land. I should point out this is not some kind of little avant garde literary exercise. If you walk towards the Staten Island Ferry Terminal, they've got huge carved letters. They're like AIDS in the AIDS yeah. ads from the 80s, these big stone letters. And, the, and this actually happens. The trees block it off, and you get different arrangements of like a Scrabble. Sorry, go ahead. And,
1: well, you get Saturn and you get almost the opposite, Stain, mm-hmm. which the book has been about things which are flexible and things which are, are corrosive, and even just ST, which is s- Saint and Street. But the thing that you don't get is Satan, <laughs> which is the obvious one yeah. that would be there as the giver of knowledge.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as he's walking across, the candy floss seller is asking these kids if they want their candy floss on sticks, and he keeps saying sticks, and it's it's kind of coded it's as it's a... The it's river the river sticks, sticks, yes. And, uh, and, uh, and the ferry, and but he doesn't take it. I think this refusal is really... Because he realises it would be profoundly meaningless to actually go to Staten Island, and, of course, not to go to Staten Island is also profoundly meaningless. So he's kind of suspended between these two types of... Meaninglessness, and and he looks at a homeless guy on a disconnected telephone. But then, I mean, this is at the end of all these... You know, he's working on some massive project, which he realises is kind of nefarious, and he should be sabotaging it, and he has these William Burroughs-like fantasies of hacking and blowing everything up, which, of course, he doesn't do. But at the end, he, he does turn back, and he goes back into the city. I kind of stole that from the end of... um. Uh, Balzac's Goriot*, where Eugène yeah. de Rastignac, he, he, he could leave Paris and leave all this situation behind, and he turns back and he goes, like, a like me, uh, me and mean, you, I and I he carries it back into the city.
1: I read that ending as a kind of gracefulness, that he knows it's meaningless whichever way he goes. And I think there is a buried Satan in there, since the book has all been about the acceptance of knowledge, about the apple of, well, you know, the very fact it's called an apple. <laughs> Yes. Is, <laughs> is entertaining sure. in its uh, profound meaninglessness. Yeah. Um, but he chooses not to try and find an ultimate meaning in the universe. Yeah. He knows as a kind of democracy that all meanings yeah. are null and void in this.
2: But he carries that kind of restlessness. He carries that buff- buffer that, yeah. that delay and that décalage, whatever you want to call it, back into the city. I, I got. I'm, I'm really taken by. I mean, a Kafka. You know, I love Kafka, and he's a huge influence on this book. And this idea of the bug, which is not just you know the, the Gregor insect bug, but it has a, yeah. especially yeah. now, a technological meaning. The, the the bug in the machine. I think, or like Dostoevsky's Underground Man. He's this. Ca- who Dostoevsky also certainly describes as like a bug within our machinery. Um, I, I think he becomes this restless kind of worm that could turn and explode at any minute. I think there's something inherently just subversive about about you going back into the into the he's like a virus in the like Conrad's professor, you know, deadly and unseen in a city full of men or whatever.
1: That's very interesting because your previous book C was an absolute homage to the great modernist classics, to The Magic Mountain to Gabriel D'Annunzio, to Conrad. And when I read this book, the, th- the feeling I came away with most profoundly was that some of the influences on it were the slightly quieter Edwardians. Um, e. M. Forster mm-hmm. in Howard's End has the great phrase, only connect. <laughs> and yet in the Maribor Caves in Passage to everything India, everything connects yeah. and disconnects yeah. and moves everything around. Just becomes boom and or um or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of you, and particularly the absolutely chilling, I don't think I've read a more chilling thing this year than when You's Girlfriend talks about the experience that happened in Turin at the airport. struck me as being very like G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday. The Man Who Was Thursday, yeah, You know, there's this point where you get the revelation and you profoundly don't know. I mean, were these people that were kind of in the hinterland of your thinking, these non-modernist modernists who had... Something to say still.
2: Th- yeah, I mean, they were definitely there. Um, but Forster was in the last book. I mean, I stole all that stuff about Alexandria. That's sta- straight from, uh, from Forster's, uh, or Forster and Cavafy. I mean, it's, a, 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 it's patch writing, you know. Um, and, uh, but sure, no, they, they were there. I mean, I, I, thi- I mean, for this book, I guess the really big model was uh, Musil, The Man Without Qualities. It's yeah. a massive 2,000-page doorstopper about a man called Ulrich. who's who's kind of, there's all these salons and these people come together, these artists and philosophers and economists and statesmen and businessmen and they're all trying to produce the great event of modernity and failing, and the gag is that they don't know, but the reader does, is that the only uh, the, the event will be the war, and they're all kind of fucked, you know? And, uh, and, and this is kind of similar. I mean, you, you've got instead of... I wanted to write a minimalist version, so instead of 2,000, we've got 200 pages, and instead of Ulrich, we've just got you, and, and the bourgeois salon of the 19th century has become the corporate think tank, the brainstorming session, and, and digital culture. I mean, the, the Internet is the kind of salon... Um, so th- that was kind of the main template, the I di- guess.
1: The digital culture is very interesting in this <coughs> because it is both um, profoundly connective and yet none of the characters can really connect in person. It's almost as if the, there's been a kind of sublime uplifting of all relationships away from the body mm-hmm. and towards some kind of non-corporeal yeah. action with each other. And it does seem that there's a certain element of regret in that. It's only when Hugh's friend dies that we come back to the body as,
2: the body as what is, we are, yeah, what we have, the what we do. body is becoming kachouk, becoming yeah. messy oil. But then when he gets the, the, the news of his friend's death over the text, uh, as a text message, his wife has just texted, gone select all and texted everyone pizza delivery and taxi firms as well as... Friends, and his first thought, he, he says his first thoughts about, oh, how sad, and I miss him, they're so banal he doesn't even bother to think about them. He thinks of the relays and the networks, and he thinks, Han, who is texting me? The record is going to show it's my friend. And, and then he thinks he's discovered the key to immortality, which would just be like pay a Chinese call centre just to endlessly send out texts you know, forever. Which is and actually happening. Right, yeah, no, no, you sure, w- there's w- all what these can post post-death curation post-death of death curation Post death curation of yeah, one's Facebook yeah, page. Yeah, exactly. Which
1: which links in with your interest in, if not the transhuman, then the necronautical society was always about yeah. uh, the nature in which high culture engages with the only finality we have. Yeah.
2: Um, but I'd say this isn't categorically new. I mean, sure, it, it, it's, it's kind of it's a contemporary novel. It's played out through recognisable hardware of digital culture. But if we think of Richardson's Clarissa, it's kind of the same. I mean, no one is there. She's not allowed to leave her room. <laughs> she's just writing letters. The whole book, I mean, people in a big house are communicating to each other via letters. And at the heart of that as well, there is a body. Well, there is a rape yeah. And, and, yeah. A, yeah. and a body. And at the end, she's, this dead body is in a coffin, like Queequeg, um, who's not in his coffin, but whatever. You know, there's, there's a coffin with ciphers all over it. She says, I am but a cipher. And then she's, at the end, she's a body in a coffin surrounded by ciphers that all the other characters are just looking at and failing to interpret. So I think, you know, I mean, I've, I've kind of tried to argue in the past about how Western literature more or less begins in Isha Lissus with an account of a signal yeah. crossing space, the beacon relays from Troy to all around the Hellenic world. It's, it's kind of the internet already. So so I don't think there's a kind of digital year zero. I mean, I, I think we're always dealing with networks it's and always communication. Always already. Always yeah. already. But But within that, there's always the body.
1: (laughs) And indeed, in Clarissa, uh, what is in Clarissa's hand when she dies? A tutor of mine once said to me, very memorable, a pen is.
2: Oh yeah, of course, (laughs) yeah.
1: I think the pun there is quite, (laughs) quite clear. It's it's a more comic work than some of your previous works. There's a certain kind of wryness, which is new compared to the, the antic nature of Sea or the kind of hysterical nature of Remainder or the carnivalesque nature of Men in Space. Why did you want to have that tone of almost affectionate distance throughout yeah. this?
2: So, I mean, the, the heroes of Remainder and Sea are, are naive heroes. They're like mm. Hans, Hans Castorp in The Magic Mountain or Tonya Kroger or whatever, any of Dickens's. I mean, they're... they're Naive. They haven't read the theory that would explain. I mean, if, if the guy in Remainder had read Proust, he would just, when he sees the crack in the wall and has his moment of deja <laughs> yes. vu, he'd go, this is kind of like Proust, and then you, you don't need to write the book. It's kind of it's over right there. But, uh, but in this book, obviously, he has read this Proust, and he's read his Levi Strauss, and he's so, so what he does as a corporate anthropologist. And when I read this, people roar with laughter, and I have to interrupt and say, No, this is not satire, this is absolutely true. He, he feeds left wing and left field theory, Deleuze, Adorno, and so yeah. on, Roland Barthes, back into the corporate machine. So he just takes concepts from Deleuze and like gives it to washing powder manufacturers without saying it's Deleuze, and they love it, and he charges them tens of thousands of, of dollars. So he's, uh, he's highly educated, like Musil already he's highly educated and highly aware of his own, of, of the appallingly compromised and ironic um, nature of, of his own situation. And, and so he's in these endless kind of feedback loops of, of self-awareness about this, and, and which uh, kind of spirals into this that vortex that's of... That's
1: um, interesting in terms of... despair. You know, <laughs> for... for you know, the situationists would have referred to as re- recuperation, mm. that any kind of radicalist theory yeah. can be co-opted back yeah. into the dominant power structures. And, you know, the very fact that one of the last situationists before Debor fired all of them yeah. went on to become Silvio Berlusconi's head of RTE <laughs> yeah. Channel, you know, we can see yeah, yeah, yeah. this. Is, is there a kind of avant-gardism or radicalism that can escape Recuperation, no. Or do we only ever have irony as a way of...
2: No, yeah, but there's irony and irony. I mean, I draw a huge distinction between the kind of, you know, the kind of smug-knowing irony that characterised so much of 90s Brit art, on the one hand, which is unproductive. <laughs> on the one hand. And on the other hand, irony, as it's classically defined by people like, you know, Demand and Baudelaire, which, which is, is a radical disturbance within yeah. being. I mean, a radical... Schism opening up that, that is irresolvable. That that type of which which maybe links back to the idea of the buffer and, and the delay, and Malamé's kind of interregnum that can never be closed down. That type of um, irony I think is in- incredibly uh, productive and. and And so to answer the first question, no, there is nothing that's not recuperated. I mean, this is why I wanted to have my guy not be a writer or an artist or even an anthropologist. I wanted him to be a corporate anthropologist, someone who is totally working for the man. Because I wanted to enmesh the figure of the, not artist, but the figure of the cultural agent within the system. He's not outside or she, he's deeply implicated within meshes of... You know, language and the symbolic and, and power and, and, uh, and, and the place of agency is, is, is a, it's about navigating that situation, negotiating that situation. It's not about retreating to some fantasy. And this is where I think Debord and this is situationism itself falls short conceptually. This idea that there is an outside and yeah. I'm outside, you're not, <laughs> which yeah. was what Debord said endlessly you know, you're, you're compromised, I'm pure. It's a, the it's a fantasy of purity, which I think is ultimately quite reactionary.
1: Well, I mean, the, the fantasy of purity in debor is absolutely true. And the way in which he um, had his own, well, how his family had his own biography censored just shows exactly how yeah. compromised even he was, even the great the great kind of a rejector of spectacle. One of the other things in the book is the illness that his friend Peter has, that cancer is this metastasis. Mm-hmm. There are things which grow in this book and yeah. they are basically trash information and disease and death. Yeah. Um, are there positive forms of growth in this as well? Or is growth itself always going to be a kind of horror, a kind of expansionism?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, so his friend who's a kind of systems Architect, and you has never understood what that actually means, even though his friend has explained (laughs) it a hundred times. Um, uh, He understands his own cancer as as a basically a data problem. If we had the right data recognition software in the in the medicine to work out the cellular structure, then then I'd be I'd be saved. But we don't. And he has all these images of a kind of a ledger that the Olympian gods have, or the gods of medicine has, that has all the combinations in, and he can never get that book. Um but uh yeah, things are growing. I mean in, in the same way as cancer is cells growing and modernity is systems mutating and coming together. I mean, knowledge as well is kind of about constant joining dots together. I mean this is what you does throughout the book. It's it's um Falter Benjamin's model for like what art and knowledge is. You, you you join dots, you constellate things that might not naturally seem to be constellated and, and you produce, and that's a kind of growing, it's a kind of growth thing as well. And then the question is, what is it, what is it growing towards? Is it, is it totality? Is it, the, what is the great project? Is it, I mean, while I was writing this, you know, Edward Snowden's revelations were coming out about the project that's been going on all the time. And that, I mean, it, it seemed to, when that happened, I kind of thought, God, that's, that's kind of what this book is about although it's not because, it, because it's not, but, you know, sorry, I'm rambling a bit, but, yeah, everything no, no, is no. system somehow.
1: Yes, and actually, you know, I read it just at the same time as I was reading books about Snowden and what yeah. was happening there, and even things like the fact that um, the intercept point had to be the British cable on the coastline <laughs> <laughs> seemed so, you know, it fitted with all the kind of theories we've read about liminality, the nature of information exchange. It suddenly seemed as if actually what, when you were at university and when I were at university, seemed like quite esoteric things. Oh, no, this is empirically. No, this this is what we need to read. We need to read the the Lacan
2: seminar on the purloin letter to understand what's going on with with MI5 and surveillance. Exactly, it's empirically true. And there's something wonderful about the idea that the theory
1: almost predated its own necessity. Right. But it was written yeah. before we really understood how necessary this it, kind it of... To,
2: yeah. I mean, in a way, what really kind of fascinates me about, about the whole Snowden thing is, is that it places writing and the question of writing at centre stage of everything. Yeah. So power and citizenship and all these questions, agency, freedom, control, it becomes quite simply a question of reading and writing. Mark Who gets to read what Mark? <laughs> yes. and and, and who, who gets to make it, and how how uh, how is inscription, and how the archives work? I mean, yeah, exactly. All, all this all this weird crap we were studying is suddenly the, the central question of always of, already uh, was social what life. we needed. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Levi Strauss is the kind of great figure that you look at in this, uh, and in terms of things like the cargo cults. Yeah, what do you think the contemporary cargo cult might look like? Capitalism.
2: <laughs> so a cargo cult is is um, it is uh, something that the anthropo my anthropologist has been fascinated with ever since he was a, a kid. And it's it's um in South Pacific islands during World War II when the Americans uh, took over the islands for part of their war effort against Japan. They built runways and aeroplanes landed, not just with weaponry but also with fridges and radios and tinned food, and. Um, and the natives observed this and they were amazed and they thought, Wow, this is great and, and when the planes went and the war was over and they took the runways away, the the the, the South Pacific Islanders started doing the rituals of waving ping pong bats and building towers, control towers out of wicker and building runways in the hope that they would come back. And the first wave of anthropologists who look at it kind of snicker and go, oh, these, these simple natives. And the second wave go, well, hang on a minute. Like, you know, we shouldn't have, haven't we been waiting for a bit more than 50 years for a, a rearrival <laughs> from the skies? <laughs> you know, we shouldn't. Uh, and, uh, and, and then also, I mean, it, it, it's, it's quite complex. I mean, it, it's also about melancholia and mourning because um, what these people actually believe is that their dead ancestors have gone to a place called Ostalia where they make tinned food and fridges and they're trying to transmit over radio the sites where the planes will land and the white man's got better equipment so intercepts the messages and uh, and the um, so, 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 it's, so in building these runways and performing these rituals they're trying to kind of rehack back into the overtaken um, communication network and bring the bounty of the dead back so it's, it's a very classical kind of structure of, of melancholia and, and um, mourning rites. I mean, it's, it's very similar to kind of Greek, Greek mythology. Um, but, but, yeah, this idea of futurity. I mean, my anthropologist realizes that this is what he's doing with, with the corporation, the consultancy he works for. It's a massive cargo cult. They're, they're always giving the, their clients narratives about in the future or, you know, suburbia will become the new town centre or will bypass the post-digital. It's always about the future, the to come, and, and he realises this is just... A w- we're just doing cargo cultism as, as well. I mean, it's brilliantly done in the book in that you capture the elegy nature of the cargo
1: cult, that this is a, an act of remembrance, Absolutely an act of feeling. Incredibly beautiful and sad about it, yeah. But also it links in with your ideas about repetition, yeah. which have been in all the books. And reenactment. And I mean the natives
2: are literally reenacting, the yes. bat-waving, you know... <laughs> something like, like priests
1: reenacting enacting them, yeah. Einstein said that the definition of madness was repeating the same action and thinking there would be a different consequence. <laughs> and it, it's sort of a sense of the sort of insanity of capitalism, that it keeps on doing the same thing and expects a different result each time, expects that somehow, you know, if you do X, it won't result in Y. It could result in, you know, A, B or C this time round.
2: I mean, I t- I'm just really, I've, I've just always been really fascinated with, with repetition and with reenactment. I mean, it's a totally instinctive, n- not even an intellectual level. I mean, you know, like all kids are. You reenact the goal that Pele or Zidane or whoever scored in the playground. Or you do that bit from Star Wars and you get your younger brother to... You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we are repetition Guilty. machines. but But I mean, you know, conceptually it's, it's great because it's an automatic critique of ideas of originality and. And that authenticity which is good I mean to trash that and and also I mean it's tied in for Freud repetition is, is in, it's part of the death drive isn't it I mean you're repeating towards towards death but I, I really like and this is where I mean in the high modernists as well you get in all I mean so in Finnegan's wake or in most of Beckett's plays nothing happens it only is reenacted or rehappened or reinterpreted so this this kind of this weird spreading out of an event field in, into these, this kind of a- fragmentation into different, although, I mean, also, it's not, it's not just a modernist thing. I mean, Hamlet reenacts his father's death in front of the court. That's his one inc- truly subversive thing. I mean, it's what it's causes react, yes. g- uh, the breakdown of the whole state. That's where it all goes wrong, when he reenacts his father's death in front of the court, and, and the kid, um, um, Claudius says enough, and Oh, I mean, I mean lights, I think lights. Lights, lights, exactly. So I think oh. that's the kind of... There's a, there's a kind of whole... I keep talking about politics, but I think there's a whole political logic as well to, to reenactment. You know, think of Jeremy Deller reenacting the Battle of Orgreaves and, and so on. I think we should move over to the floor for a while,
1: but we are more than happy to keep on chatting about... The, the the gentleman who knew the exact page, I think, yes, he deserves the first Definitely, question. Yeah. And as long <laughs> as it is just a repetition of the f- last <laughs> thing you said.
0: Yeah, I'm just puzzled about one sentence, um, because this sentence puzzles me. Because it's the guy one you'll know it. The homeless guy was still there, two going slowly down the row of payphones, searching for forgotten change caught in their mechanism. And I think the idea of communication that captures and hides change yeah, so that any change that you might come... You know, the availability is there. The availability of change is there. But we've forgotten because we're constantly <coughs> swapping. That seems almost too unmodernist, And I sort of felt... Well, actually, I loved it. But <laughs> it was like a piece of lyrical political sense that um, uh, the homeless are not always with you because they have to be. They're there through acts of political repetition.
1: Yeah. Forgotten change caught in the mechanism is yeah. almost the absolute definition of recuperation, yeah. isn't it? You know, the revolutionary stuck within the mechanistic yeah. nature of our politics so that we even forget the possibility that we once thought we could change
2: things. I mean. It's a brilliant question. I don't have the answer, I mean, because I, I hadn't worked out what it meant. It's just, it's just a kind of image that I'm, that, that I'm obsessed by. That I mean, it goes all the way back to Men in Space. He's standing yeah. in a disconnected yeah. phone box, and there's the Beatles line, honey, disconnect the phone, I'm back in the USSR. And, um, and in Remainder, he keeps going into the phone box, and yeah. then it disconnects. And, and, and then by by, stati- by Satin Island, um, You know, no one even uses payphones anymore. It's incredibly anachronistic. And this poor guy is still looking for change. And will there be any? And um, I don't know. I mean, you know, in Ulysses, you've got Stephen imagining that our navels are just telephone cords strand entwining us back to... And he imagines trying to get through to Eden and to to Mary, or not Mary, Eve, sorry, and and, and this idea of, yeah, kind of universal connectedness and a series of, of interruptions that all seems to be at play around the, the telephone, but I, I, I don't know if, I mean, yeah, I don't know if there's one kind of way that I'd interpret that, it's just this haunting image that, Could I say that the, the, the yeah. The,
0: the issue seem to be um,
1: sorry, at can, the same can you time as you just wait so that everyone yeah. can hear on uh, the loop sorry. as well. At the same
0: time as reading that, I, I, I actually saw—I um, can't remember which film it was. It was either the Pervert's Guide to Cinema or the Pervert's Guide to Ideology, where, 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 um, which is not my program, <laughs> but, but uh, which is actually a philosophical work, <laughs> uh, uh, where, where, where is it? Where is that uh, talks about. Uh, being captured by ideology from seeing the change that is available to you. And that's what that you know that we will always think there can be no change because we will be thus trapped. Anyway, I wondered if that was there, but maybe just my invention.
2: I was I mean I wasn't think I mean I've seen that film. I, I wasn't thinking of that specifically of that particular interpretation. But he has had this fantasy that maybe Staten Island, which isn't a trash pile anymore, it's a, it's a nice suburb, that this could just be some other place, some Valhalla where everything is different and starting again and and he doesn't go, I mean he, he goes back into the kind of the loop, the cycle, and the cycle of other people going over there kind of repeats because a ferry terminal runs on a loop, obviously with especially something like the Staten Island ferry terminal with a 15 Ooh. minute turnover. So yeah, and then you've got this almost OCD thing the homeless guy is doing of just looking in this mechanism for, for change or for a penny to drop, which, <laughs> which it doesn't. And then he's looking at him and then he breaks off eye contact and goes back into the city. But It's, it's an
1: astonishingly elegant book in the way the, the ideas are, you know, even saying the penny to drop there and the way in which currency, cognition... Uh, communication all begin to sort of crystallise and constellate is just absolutely fabulous in this. It is uh, long-listed for the Man Booker. Um, My record of predictions is terrible in that (laughs) the only year that (laughs) a book won the Man Booker Prize that I really wanted to win was the year I was a judge. (laughs) So, but, you know, all my hopes will be on (laughs) this one or or on another one so that this one can then perhaps sneak through. Can we get another question from the floor? Okay. Oh, yeah. if you... So,
0: I, I'm also going to throw something that I've seen that's probably not there. But I was thinking with the numbering. <coughs> and, and also, what you just said... Well, what you, what you said at the beginning about it being, like, useless and something else. When I was seeing it, I was seeing um, Wittgenstein. So, it, here, you've got, like, a theory of everything trying to ex- encompass everything and you get to the end and you realise it's, it's pucked. So is, is that in there
2: or...? Yeah, I mean, some people get really into Wittgenstein and back. That's like... <laughs> and I'm not one of those people. I mean, I, yeah, I, sure, I kind of looked at the tractatus and, and I'm sure the numbering of paragraphs is not... I mean, it was kind of playing in there a bit in, in my head. Um, and the idea of the report and just the world, the world being all that is the case and the unspeak. I mean, all this stuff, sure, that's kind of, kind of in the... I mean, with numbers, actually, when he goes on about finding the right number and combinations, I was thinking more of, of Malame and his obsession with numbers in, in um, a throw of the dice will never yeah. abolish chance and the idea of we could get the one number that cannot be another. This would be... Uh, this would be it. This would be... Um, the epiphany, the, the, the revolutionary, um, glorious event that would resolve the history of literature and, and history and existence and everything. But the number always always vanishes as well and, you, uh, and you've just got the, the, da- the, the dice jumping and spinning and that kind of becomes literature. It's the unresolved, that delay, you know, again. So Which I was kind of thinking of, yeah, numbers and betting yeah. and... Um, Which is
1: kind of theological as well. Oh, in totally, The, you know, the yeah. name of God as yeah. being a number. Algorithmic sequence, especially with in the whole old yeah.
2: Jewish tradition of just yeah. working out the algorithms. The, sort of the that, yeah. that, that
1: that were there. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, when I read this, I didn't think of the Tractatus as being the kind of uh, one of the texts playing into it, but the later Wittgenstein... Um, in which he is much more nuanced about the fact that there is always a slippage. You know, you can have family groupings of things, which all of them will have something in common with one of the others, but not all of them will have everything in common with them at all. He he built into it by that stage the idea that there could be unnecessary fracture between the things that we see as being the same. And I mean, were were the blue books or the black books,
2: were they... No, I mean, I, I, I'm not that, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not that much, I, I haven't spent that much time with Wittgenstein. I mean, probably more with, I mean, I mean with mathematics, people like Badiou, you know, who, yeah. who comes from a mathematics background and uses set theory to think through Malame and to think what the event might be out of that. I was, I was kind of reading that directly, but the blue, blue and black books... I wasn't reading directly. But, it just but kind you of f- would be a great around. person
1: to get to this festival at one year. But there was somebody <laughs> at the back there.
2: So, um, hearing,
1: I haven't read the book yet myself. I'm kind of thinking I'm looking forward to doing so. Uh, but hearing some of the stuff you were talking about, how your analyst is seeing the world through his information connection oriented way, the corporation happily incorporates left wing ideas into their corporatist world, even you yourselves. Uh, in reinterpreting kind of the Snowden stuff within the literary sphere is everybody in this book kind of condemned to never exceed themselves to like, so never know, what, ex- ex- exceed themselves yeah, exceed? kind of in the way I'm like uh, Google's Deep dream recently a machine trained to recognise dogs sees the universe as dogs made out of dogs made out of dogs living in solar systems of dogs <laughs>
2: um, does anybody
1: poke a hole in their box?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're all in these, <sighs> I mean, this kind of comes back to this kind of theory we were talking about a moment ago. I mean, there's something, there's something very, um, I think there's something very positive about um, kind of thinking in terms of networks and communication networks. And I mean, the kind of anti-humanist side of that. I mean, humanism, is appalling and needs to be utterly buried <laughs> again and again but then the kind of logic i mean the logic of 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 the great anti-humanist thinkers from heidegger through derrida and nietzsche and you know all these people is also exactly the logic of of google and of the most uh, you know of, of of the the matrix <laughs> that we find ourselves within now um and And then the question is, how do you think your way beyond that? What do we want? You know, everyone like Stephen Fry is saying, no, no, we don't want to be surveyed because we are absolutely autonomous. And you know, they're going back to humanism, back to a to a reactionary position in order to escape a kind of a reactionary situation. That's one response to Edward Snowden's revelations. I mean, I'd say another response would be would. Would would be not to fall back on s- notions of authenticity and the human spirit and blah blah blah, but but to kind of um, hack, to reconfigure, to think of ways of, of breaking open bodies uh, and, and 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 of detouring to use the situationist term, of hijacking and rerouting um, flows of of information and of desire. I mean this is not just a conceptual book it's absolutely about desire and it's a love it's a love book you know i mean i think these things are all at stake and 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 this would be a kind of a a way that i'd try and i'd hope that artists and others are trying to think the current quandary in a in a kind of radical way
1: it is as i said at the beginning it is an incredibly plangent book it is a book about love it is a book about how one gets to know another person. But just to to finish off, just to wrap up before we go over to the bookshop where Tom will be signing copies, I can't commend the book enough to you. I think that it is one of the few books that I read and thought this will be a classic, uh, as I've thought about most of Tom's work. I'd just like to end with a little, to ask you to think a little bit about you as a corporate um, anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And a corporation
2: which is from corpse and body which is yeah. from
1: corpse and body is a legal entity which has personhood
2: oh especially since citizens united has more yeah. legal rights as a person than a person as has
1: personhood but doesn't have a body yeah which strikes me as a very easy definition of a ghost yeah yeah sure what a is mat- haunting this book
2: yeah a material ghost so oil I mean oil which is a corporate exactly. thing. I mean Shell caused it, but there are all these bodies dispersed and, and, and then they come together in this kind of weird Hobbesian Leviathan kind of way and, and but it's also kind of yeah, the the tears of every dinosaur. <laughs> so, I mean this is a kind of, you know, global melancholia as well. It's 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 the crust of the earth weeping, isn't it? But and wiping itself on, on the sleeve of um Alaska or, or whatever. You know, you know. Given
1: that, given that you are um not religious, that you are, to some extent, a materialist. The idea that all your books have been haunted or sort of ghost-ridden, how do you explain that to yourself?
2: Oh, uh, there's nothing metaphysical about haunting. There's a beautiful bit of YouTube footage of Derrida being asked. He's sitting in his office and someone says, do you believe in ghosts? And just that he starts... He starts talking about Hegel or something and whatever, and then just then the telephone rings, and he goes, "Whoa, scrap, forget Hegel. That's a ghost right there." <laughs> <laughs> the, the telephone b- b- is ghost. Yeah, and totally. Which is the same as Kafka said, actually. The ghosts live. I mean, the ghosts are are the and you know, now we're that, all that, that bound
1: to our ghosts.
2: Yeah, the disconnected number I still call. It's a Tony, the most unfashionable, untrendy poet, Tony Harrison, who I think is actually really good. He has yeah, this he line, is. The disconnected number wi- wi- I still call. It's
1: a, yeah. Tom, it's has been an ghosts. absolutely wonderful hour. You absolutely rekindle my faith that the novel being novel is still possible and is still necessary. I'm sure the audience will want to join me in thanking you a great deal indeed. It's a real pleasure Tom to McCarthy. talk to you.
2: Thank you very much. More
1: podcasts and videos
0: of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube just search for edbook fest